Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Slavs, who were they and where did they come from? Living as they did in the forested areas north of the Pontic Steppes, and so just beyond the known world of the ancient Mediterranean authors, there are few written references to them in early times, and so historians either have to rely on what scraps of evidence there are, or on archaeological or linguistic evidence. The Indo-European origins of their languages suggest that they were settled in Eastern Europe since at least the 3rd millennium BC, but that is not known for sure. The current consensus among historians is that their original homeland was somewhere north of the Carpathian Mountains, around the area of what is today southeastern Poland, southern Belarus and northwestern Ukraine. This is the story of their early years. This is A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Siege of Kherson, Part 3 of 5. Over a long period of many centuries, the Slavs slowly dispersed in different directions. To their west they met resistance from other tribes, but to their east the mixed forest areas were sparsely inhabited and so still had room for peaceful migration. The people who lived there before were of two different ethnic groups, the Finno-Ugrians and the Balts. The Finno-Ugrians, who were characterised by more or less common language of which Finnish is one descendant and Hungarian another, inhabited at the time the expanses of land from northern Scandinavia across to the Urals. The Balts, meanwhile, another linguistic group, lived in a band of territory ranging from the area just east of modern-day Denmark along the southern Baltic coast and then inland eastwards as far as Moscow and the Volga River Basin. As the Slavs gradually migrated southeast, they met the first serious resistance in the steppe regions of Ukraine. There lived various warlike nomadic peoples who halted their attempts at migration for centuries. But despite the dangers, the South offered potentially great opportunities for trade of the ancient Greek and the later Roman cities in the Balkans and along the coasts of the Black Sea and Sea of Azov. The first known Slavic tribe were called the Antei. They originated during the first two centuries AD in today's Ukraine, when a branch of the Alans, a people of Iranian origin began to organise the Slavic and other tribes living in lands between the River Prut and the Lower Dniestra. Over many years, the Antaean power base moved northwards into the more heavily Slavic-populated forested regions, and as this happened, the Slavs gradually replaced the military elite of Irano-Alanic origin. Information about the Slavs in this period comes from the 6th century historians Giordanes, who is of Gothic descent, and Procopius, a Byzantine chronicler. Giordanes distinguished two major groups along the Slavs of his day. He wrote, quote, Though their names are now dispersed amid various clans and places, 
yet they are chiefly called Clavene and Antai. End quote. He placed the Sclaveni between the Danube and the Dniester rivers, and the Antei between the Dniester and Dnipro. The chronicler Procopius wrote about the campaigns of his emperor Justinian I against the Slavs across the Danube. A number of victories were achieved which allowed Justinian to add Antichus, or conqueror of the Antei, to his imperial titles. The success was short-lived, however, and Justinian later faced several setbacks in his efforts to subjugate the Slavs. After the Antei pillaged the Byzantine province of Thrace, Justinian was forced to come to an accommodation. The Antei were allowed to settle north of the Danube and receive regular payments from the imperial treasury in exchange for keeping the peace and defending the Byzantine borders against any other hostile tribes. As for how the Slavs were as people, Procopius writes that, quote, their bodies and hair are neither fair nor blonde, nor indeed do they incline entirely to the dark type, but they are all slightly ruddy in colour, He continues that they lived, quote, hard life, giving no heed to bodily comforts, and were continually and at all times covered with filth, end quote. Nevertheless, he had respect for their social order and degree of democracy, Free writes, quote, These Clemeni and the Antei are not ruled by one man, but they have lived under a democracy, and consequently everything that involves their warfare, whether for good or for ill, is referred to the people. End quote. As for their religion, Procopius writes that they believe that one God, the maker of lightning, is alone Lord of all things, and they sacrifice to him cattle and all other victims and in addition they believe in many lesser sacred beings. They revere both rivers and nymphs, and some other spirits, and they sacrifice to all these also, and they make their divinations in connection with these sacrifices. According to Paul Robert Magoski in his book A History of Ukraine, there seems to have been two categories of God, major ones who had control over the forces of nature, and minor ones who inhabited local woods, fields and rivers. One of the most important was Perun, the god of thunder. Sacrifices were made and rituals performed in the service of all these gods. Although the Antei evolved into a powerful tribal league, they were conquered in the early 7th century by the Avars, a confederation of Turkic-speaking tribes from the northern Caspian steppes, after which the Antei disappear from historical sources. The Avars gave way as rulers of the Pontic Steppes to the Khazars, who I discussed in the previous podcast. Our sources of information on Slavs living under Khazar rule are very limited, so we are forced to rely on a narrative of much later Kievan chroniclers. Unlike in other parts of Europe, where we have a variety of medieval chronicles to compare and corroborate each other, in Eastern Europe we are forced to rely almost entirely on one sole text as our primary source the Primary Chronicle, otherwise known as the Tales of Bygone Years. The only other similar text is the Novgorod First Chronicle, with its focus further north. Also some writings of Arab and Greek historians, and also Icelandic bards mention in passing events and peoples of Eastern Europe. Fortunately, the Primary Chronicle is a comprehensive account of the history of Rus, and is regarded as being largely historically accurate. 
However, the chronology of several events is known to be wrong, and most importantly, the biases of its authors must be taken into consideration. For example, it overemphasizes Kiev's role in early history, and is dismissive of events and peoples in other regions. And also the writers assume that most of the ancient inhabitants of their lands were Slavs, when in fact the Slavs were relatively recent arrivals. The primary chronicle is unequivocal that the founders of Kievan Rus were of Scandinavian origin, and this is the accepted view by historians. In the wider European context this makes sense, because it occurred at a time when Vikings were active in many parts of the continent. The beginning of the Viking Age is usually marked as June 8th, 793, when a raiding party arrived from Norway at the Christian monastery on the island of Lindisfarne, off the English coast. As not only feared warriors but superb navigators, the Vikings terrorised the coasts of England and northern Europe over the course of the 9th and 10th centuries, raiding as far as Spain. But they were interested not only in plunder but also trade and even sometimes the outright conquest of new lands. King Canute of Danish origin ruled England from 1016 to 1035 and if events had turned out differently his descendants could have established there a long dynasty. Instead, the English throne ended up in the hands of William the Conqueror, who, as a Norman, was a descendant himself of the Vikings. The theory that it was the Scandinavians who helped found Kievan Rus, called the Normanist view, was contended by some Russian and Ukrainian nationalist historians in Soviet times. Uncomfortable with the idea of any outside interference in the foundation myth of their nations, they argued that the Rus were in fact Slavs. Nevertheless, archaeological evidence as well as written evidence suggests that the Scandinavian population was present across Eastern Europe beginning from the 10th century at the latest. Perhaps they were only ever a small minority, and for certain, like their Norman contemporaries in northern France, they soon went native, adopting local languages and other cultural practices. Perhaps the best summary of the generally accepted view is from a commentary published in 1962 and quoted by Paul Robert Magoski in his book A History of Ukraine. Quote, it is now, indeed, widely recognised that the Kiev state was not born ex nihilo with the advent of the Vengeans in the 9th century, but that its social and economic foundations were laid in the preceding period, during which the Slavs and the Dnipro Basin played an active part in the political and commercial life of the West Eurasian and Pontic steppes that a pre-existent Slavonic land-owning aristocracy and merchant class remains the mainstay of the country's territorial stability and the economic strength under its Viking overlords. It is equally clear, however, that it was the Scandinavian invaders who in the second half of the 9th century united the scattered tribes of the Eastern Slavs into a single state based on the Baltic Black Sea waterway to which they gave their Rus name." End quote. The most accepted theory of the origin of the word Rus is that the Byzantines borrowed it from the Slavs, who in turn borrowed it from the Finns, who used the word Rotsi to denote the Swedes. The word meant men who row, and fits with the Vikings as boatmen who used the waterways to navigate all the way from the Baltic to the Black and Caspian Seas along the region's extensive river network. The Scandinavians who travelled into Eastern Europe came to be known as the Varingians. 
The first who arrived were content with hit-and-run raids on coastal ports or towns along the rivers navigable from the sea. Others soon realised the potential riches to be gained from trade in the region, especially when they heard stories about the riches of the Karganate of the Khazars. Based near the mouth of the River Volga, by the Caspian Sea, the Khazars were a Turkic semi-nomadic aristocracy who ruled over a vast multi-ethnic confederacy which stretched from the River Dnieper across the Pontic and Kuban steppes to the Caspian. Since about the 630s AD, they had grown rich by controlling a vast network of trade which extended as far as the Byzantine Empire and the Arab Caliphate. A number of Varingians took the opportunity to tap into these highly lucrative markets and soon began to trade furs and slaves from the north in exchange for spices, metalware, cloth and most valuable of all, silver. By the 8th century they had established the so-called Saracen route which took them from the Baltic Sea on through the Gulf of Finland and then over land, rivers and lakes to the upper Volga. From there they could travel all the way down the Volga River southwards into the heartlands of the Khazars. Along this route they set up trading posts and eventually centres of settlement. One of the most important was Staria Ladoga, on the southern shores of Lake Ladoga, which is situated to the east of the Gulf of Finland, by which it is connected by the river Neva. The largest lake in Europe, Lake Ladoga, lies a little northeast of the outskirts of modern St. Petersburg. The site of the medieval town of Staria Ladoga has been extensively investigated by archaeologists, who, with the help of dendrochronology, a method of establishing the age of wood from looking at sequences of tree rings, have dated the earliest signs of settlement to around 750 AD. Archaeological finds at Staria Ladoga, including coins from the Abbasid Caliph and other numerous finds of Scandinavian origin, such as smith's tools and knives, reveal the extent of the trading network with which the town was linked from its earliest days. Rivers and lakes had been the lifeblood of the region since prehistoric times, not only as the quickest way to travel through the forests, but also as a source of food and water. They also act as one of the region's few focal points, situated as they are amidst dense forests, which stretch on for thousands of kilometres in no particular pattern. The Great Lakes in particular, such as Lakes Ladoga and Ilmen, acted as communication hubs, drawing in craftsmen and traders, as well as farmers who benefited from the fertile lakeside soils. The location of the principal base of the early Varingian leadership is controversial, but may well have looked onto Lake Ilmen, just south of the modern city of Veliki Novgorod, also known just as Novgorod. Lake Ilmen lies to the south of and upstream from Lake Ladoga. An early settlement there by the name of Gorodish is known to have been an important trading centre with excellent communications in all directions. Northwards to Lake Ladoga, eastwards towards the Volga and southwards towards the western Davina, also known as the River Daugava. A number of Varingians preferred to use their military skills rather than engage in trade. Some came to be employed in the service of Constantinople, where, famous for their bravery and military prowess, they served in elite imperial military units and as the emperor's bodyguards. 
Others, meanwhile, sought to establish themselves as rulers of settlements in the region, either forming new towns or taking control from the natives. Those who succeeded gained much wealth by exploiting the regional trade networks. The details of this period are obscure because of the lack of contemporary written records. Historians must piece together the evidence from the primary chronicle and other sources, which were often contradictory, to try and establish the order of events surrounding the formation of the first major settlements and political hierarchies of the areas. Initially, the main focus of interest of the Varingians was down the Volga into the Caspian Sea. This route offered the highest potential profit within the region, but the difficulty was that another people had already firmly established themselves in the middle Volga, the Volga Bulgars. This group represented a military power strong enough to block any ambitions from outsiders for political control. Trading also became more difficult along the Volga from the late 10th century, when the most powerful group in the region, the Khazars, were struggling to maintain order in the face of aggression from a fierce nomadic tribe called the Pechenegs. And so a number of Varingians turned their attention to an alternative route, running directly southwards from Lake Ladoga, along a stretch of the western Davina River, and then by portage to the Dnipro, which flowed all the way down to the Black Sea, and this route gave access to the lucrative market of Byzantium. The Byzantine Empire enjoyed a golden age from 843 until the first quarter of the 11th century, when it achieved a significant expansion of territory as well as commercial and cultural influence. At the same time, however, the Arab advances in the Mediterranean during the 9th and 10th centuries disrupted the empire's trade with southern and western Europe. As a consequence, the Black Sea trade route took on a new importance for Constantinople, perhaps greater than at any time since the days of Herodotus in the 5th century BC. By this time, the main products supplied to the south were no longer cereal crops from the Pontic steppes, but rather slaves, honey, wax and furs obtained from the forested areas further north. In exchange, the northern traders purchased corn, wine, silk and luxury goods. The Dnipro Black Sea route contained for the Varingians, however, one serious obstacle. In the lower reaches of the Dnipro were a series of granite ridges, nine of them stretching all the way across the river, and many others projecting part of the way. The river's waters, in full flow, were forced up and over these natural dams, making navigation extremely hazardous. In the spring, rapids risked driving any vessel helpless against the granite, while in other seasons the shallow waters were impassable, and cargoes had to be offloaded for transportation by land over a stretch of up to 70 kilometres. Guaranteeing this section of the route required strong political leaders, with an army strong enough to defend against attack by the local Pechenegg tribes. Hence the Varingians had a clear motivation for establishing and leading a political organisation to help them best exploit the trading opportunities. According to the primary chronicle, the Varingians early on became overlords of the local Slavic and Finno-Ugrian tribes, but were overthrown when the locals decided to take back political control for themselves. Soon after, however, the rebels came to regret their bid for independence. For, quote, there was no law among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war against one another. 
they said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to law. Accordingly, they went overseas to the Vrindian Rus and said to them, Our whole land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. There was much scepticism as to the veracity of the claims that the Rus were invited in to rule particularly taken into consideration that the intention of the writers of the primary chronicle were to glorify the dynasty of Rurik, eldest of the three brothers who were said to have responded to this appeal. Sergei Plokhi, in his book, The Origins of the Slavic Nations, certainly does not believe the story, for he writes, quote, We know perfectly well that whatever problems former subjects encounter, they do not go back to their former overlords voluntarily, end quote. Either way, by the 860s, a band of Vikings, or Varingians, known as the Rus, were about to make their mark on world history. I'd love to hear from you. For any comments or suggestions you may have about the podcast. You can contact me on the Facebook page for History of Europe Key Battles, on the blog www.historyeurope.net, or on Twitter at historyeurope. KB. And also you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next week when I will tell the story of how the Vikings began to organise the first Russian state known as Kievan Rus. Until then, have a great week and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.